Welcome back, movie fans. Coming to you live from Denton, Texas. This is the Daniel Barrios Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Daniel Berrios Podcast. This is the show about the movies hosted by yours truly, Daniel Berrios. It is a gorgeous sunset going on behind me here in Denton, Texas. I'm recording this on June 13th, 2021. One day, one day before my 28th birthday. So, happy birthday to me. You're going to be noticing some pauses here. That's because I got some whiskey and I got some Stella Artois. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It came out on HBO Max. I was actually able to watch all three movies in a row, so I figured I'd take today to just talk about the trilogy and what it means to me upon a revisit. Because I don't think there are any movies in the horror genre outside maybe Get Out. And I don't even argue Get Out has this... If you want to talk about the last 10 years, the first horror movie on most people's minds outside of Get Out would be a Conjuring movie or anything related to the Conjuring movies because what started out as an R-rated, tiny, independent boom from James Wan, the master of tiny little independent booms, to a billion-dollar horror franchise is staggering. I mean, you've got the Annabelle spinoffs, you've got The Nun, you've got The Curse of La Llorona, which didn't really start as a spinoff as far as I know. But all through and through, there were these Conjuring films directed by James Wan, the guy behind Saw, Insidious, he did Furious 7, Aquaman, he's going to do Aquaman, and The Lost Kingdom. Or at least that's what he announced the title to be on his Instagram, but that's what it is. Uh, James Wan, I've always noticed, is guy who's never really stayed in one place very long. I mean, he goes from torture porn, I think, with Saw 1 and Saw 2, to a revenge thriller with Death Sentence, and then you've got the puppet horror of Dead Silence, and then Insidious, which is kind of like Poltergeist, uh, with the supernatural ghost kid, creepy kid with the ghost in the house, whatever. That took more of like a sci-fi twist later in that franchise. And The Conjuring, on the surface, seems like much of a 70s vibe haunted house movie. But I think where one decided to stray and turn differently is that he focuses so much on the humanity of these people. What are you guys? Well, we've been called ghost hunters, paranormal researchers. But we prefer to be known simply as Ed and Lorraine Warren. There's someone here that would like to talk to you. There's something horrible happening in my house. It's November 1st, 1971. I'm sitting here with Carolyn Perrin, who, with her family, has been experiencing supernatural occurrences. You picking up anything in here, hon? Something awful happened here, Ed. What is it? Whatever Lorraine sees, feels, touches, it takes a toll on her. 
little piece each time. You have a lot of spirits in here, but there's one that I'm most worried about because it is so hateful. Look what she made me do. <gasps> we have to get out of here. That's not gonna help. This thing has latched itself to your family. Father, we never seen nothing like this. I'm coming with you. No way. I can't lose you. There's a lady in a dirty nightgown that I see in my dreams. She's standing in front of my mom's bed. Do you want to see him? Yeah. And the music stops. What differentiates this from something like Poltergeist is that the Ed and Lorraine characters would be the exposition dump. They would be there just to finally explain to the audience, okay, these are what the ghosts are about. This is what we're going to do to take care of them. Da -da 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 -da. And because they aren't given that much of a role, that much of a character, so to speak, because they're already weird because of the stuff that they're dealing with, they're otherized. And what's awesome about The Conjuring is that it humanizes these kinds of people first and foremost, and it gets you to really start thinking like, yo, these guys aren't crazy. They're just an average couple who see some weird shit and found each other, fell in love, and decided to help other people with their weird shit. And there's something so wholesome and admirable underneath all this crazy darkness of demonic possession and witchcraft and crazy shit that happens what I realized watching this for the second time, because I hadn't seen this since 2013, is that The Conjuring basically comes off as the Incredibles of horror. What's amazing is that the movie takes the time to really slow down, get you to fall in love with these people, get you to fall in love with them as a married couple. These people have history, and the movie just goes with it and embraces it and loves it and it's a different kind of relationship than what we're used to and the reason i'm harping on this is so much is because the franchise not the spin-offs or anything but really the trilogy focuses on that that it's about these people and their love for each other that really keeps them grounded in a world that threatens to rip everything apart at any chance like it really takes a strong relationship to be able to handle all the fuckery that these people see on a on a daily basis and i mean the fuckery inside this uh pennsylvania house is some crazy shit you know it's the typical <clears throat> i wouldn't say the formula of what uh, james wan is taking from is really any different i mean you've got things that go bump in the night you've got uh voices that nobody can explain you've got creepy kids waking up in the middle of the night hearing some shit and You've got uh, the dog, and the dog starts going towards the brand new house, and they're like, bark, 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 like, I'm not going inside that shit. You know, if you've seen a haunted house movie, you've seen this film, but where Juan excels, like I'm saying, is he gives you the time to really fall in love with these characters. You like the daughters. I liked Ron Livingston, and especially Lily Taylor. 
because a lot of the movie comes from her point of view. So her as a mom who's kind of struggling, you know, the dad isn't really down on his luck with his, I guess it's his trucking job. I guess that's what that was. I wasn't totally clear on it. But the dad's kind of down on his luck with his trucking job and she's struggling a little bit. And of course she has five daughters, so she has to feed everybody. And on top of all this, you know, you've got things that are going bump in the night because they can go bump in the night. They've got this environment which they can breed and fester off potentially negative energy. So seeing all this crazy shit go down and in inventive ways, I think one knows exactly what types of movies that he's basing his stuff off on and is doing little twists here and there. It's almost like if William Castle and John Carpenter had a baby because for, on one hand... When things do go bump in the night and you get to see what's happening, there are moments where I can imagine James Wan standing behind the camera just giggling like a schoolboy because he's having fun spooking people. He's having fun trying to get you, you know? And at the same time, John Carpenter, in the sense that he understands so much about suspense and so much about how to catch the audience off guard. So when it does hit, it scares you, it thrills you at the same time. It's cool because you've also got two movies going on. The one movie would have been, you know, the family from Lily Taylor's point of view being haunted, and then you've got the demonologist coming in. But now you've got the dual balance of the demonologist going about their day, going about their lives, there's something that's gone on in the past with Lorraine that nobody wants to talk about that's putting strains in their relationship. It's weird because you're dealing with a movie about demonologists where they're talking about work troubles. You know, they're talking about basically the, the difficulties of the job and it's so normalized that in a way it's even scarier to me. They're so normal and yet they're dealing with things that if left unchecked could turn utter chaos at any second. And I like that dichotomy. And I like that uh, normally these characters are portrayed in film as sort of like the, like I said, the weird ones, but they're also kind of nebbish and they're, you know, not really socially well adjusted. Nope, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are two charming motherfuckers. You know, you look at them in a crowd and you just think they're the average, everyday American couple. And what's wonderful about these people is that they so readily involve themselves in other people's lives and just kind of, I guess, because the threat entrenches themselves in people's lives and really gets to the heart of who they are and what troubles them and what really torments them, that... It's so fitting and wonderful that the cure is, you know, community, entrenching yourself in the same way, becoming involved in these people's lives. They're almost like healthcare workers in a sense. I don't know, just seeing the ghost story approached with that kind of holistic mentality is fresh. And it really makes this movie, which could so easily be in a genre that's you know, readily willing to just slap a couple bucks on screen in the name of gore and titties. Like, there's nothing cynical about this. There's something that's so sincere and wholesome about a bunch of characters that you want to win. 
you know, how often do we in horror movies hear about people that we just want to die? We just want to watch them die right away. What's the coolest way that they could die? And there's something refreshing about people that if they were to really get theirs, I'd be devastated. It would be awful. And that's why this movie kind of feels like a superhero film in a way. And maybe that leads to the success of the franchise as a whole. Maybe they approach these characters as kind of like these superheroes that you really want them to be safe and go on and save the day. You know, we don't get a lot. We might get a lot of horror heroes, but horror heroes that are icons in the same way that the villains are. Like Ed and Lorraine Warren are heroes to a brand new generation, just like, you know, Ash Williams is for kids of the 80s in different ways of course but they are and the fact that the franchise has lasted almost 10 years I think is uh, a testament to that mentality and so what I really fell in love with with Conjuring 1 and rediscovered again was just the love of the characters the love of the people that are fighting these demons I don't find the movie particularly that scary. I don't really, like, jump out of my seat, even though the jump scares are well executed and a lot of fun. And utilizing simple tricks, you know, like a clap here or just, like, playing with the camera and and doing things to where you're not totally kilter. You know, shooting things from behind the person who's walking so you feel like you're right there behind them. You know, just little things with the camera that you think and go, oh, this is putting me inside the house. You know, he started, James Wan, this tracking shot throughout the Conjuring movies that now becomes the staple of the franchise, but it really does get your bearing, one, with the people that you're going to be following for the rest of the movie, and two, it does get your bearing around the house, because guess what? The rest of the movie is going to be spent navigating this house to see what goes bump in the night. And it's so funny that a director would be like, all right, this is your playground. Get used to it because I'm going to find a way to scare you in a space that you now know. You know where everything is in this house, but I'm still going to find a way to spook you. I think that's a confident move. I think it's cocky in the best way. And yeah, James Wan pulled it off with a plum. So Conjuring... uh, I do think now is actually the best in the franchise. I think the character's work that's going on there is the strongest. I like the pace of it a lot more. It's really only an hour and 50 minutes, which for the way that it starts kind of slow, it never dulls down. Like There's always momentum going, and I think one edits the balance between both families perfectly whenever i would find myself being like all right let's go see what x and x are doing they would show up so i think the conjuring is the best one in the franchise but in 2016 i watched the conjuring 2 and at that moment i was prepared to be like nope this is better than the first one i love this film this movie's so inventive and fun and it's basically james wan turned up to 11 like he saw all the crazy tricks and fun that he could do with horror in the first movie and he just blew it up this is my home get out now 
No, this is not your house. Now, what's your name? My name is Bill Wilkins, and I'm 72 years old. What do you make of that voice? Sounds confused. Is he senile? The voice on this tape is coming from an 11-year-old girl. They're calling it England's Amityville. There is a family that desperately needs our help. After everything we've seen, there isn't much that rattles either of us anymore. But this one, this one still haunts me. Does it feel like the voice is coming from inside you? More like it's coming from behind me. Like I'm being used. Janet, are you all right? Stop calling me Janet. She's such a good girl. What's there wrong with her? An oppressing spirit will try to force you to commit the ultimate sin. And what's that? Murder? Suicide? Or both? You believe us, don't you? Sensing a presence? I'm not sensing anything. All I can sense is their own fear. What is happening? I had a premonition of your death. Who's that? The family's just a pawn. Something inhuman wants to kill you. If we keep doing this... You're going to die. Conjuring 2, instead of taking place with a Peron family, it sees Ed and Lorraine Warren go off to England to help, I guess, at the what would be known as the Enfield House. And it's this single mother. She's got a bunch of kids. Bunch of motherfucking kids. And they're being, you know, haunted by, I guess, a poltergeist. Like a spirit of somebody that potentially died in the house and is haunting them now. Ooh, and it's especially haunting the little girl. And now the little girl is the super creepy threat. Where in the first movie, I think Lily Taylor, the mom, was the one who is getting really messed up by the ghost in this one it's this little girl madison wolf plays the daughter janet and the mom uh, francis o'connor plays peggy and both of them are fantastic in this film i think they really carry uh the heart of what's going on in this thing the mom being you know the struggling one trying to keep everybody calm and feed everyone despite not having any money and you know, really trying to better herself in an environment that even more so than the first movie seems darker and more downtrodden and more ready to accept that negative energy. I mean, fucking London's raining half the fucking year anyway, so it's literally darker than the first one. 
The great thing about Conjuring 2 is that James Wan basically just has, like, a blank slate to go nuts. Like, there's stop-motion scares in this movie, and there are different types of scares. And one of the cool excuses for that that I find the spinoffs really don't take advantage of, or at least they've taken too much liberties with, is that the demons in these movies, it doesn't really matter what scares you. You know, it's it's not a nun. You know, it's not a witch. It's not a crooked man. Some weird, like, storybook character come to life. It's that the demon will take on anything. The demon will use anything it gets to try to get you. There are these constant forces around you that are ready and willing to just completely suck you dry of anything good and human in order to fulfill their own nefarious hungers. It's fucked in that sense. The spinoffs focus so much on the what. You know, oh, we have to have three Annabelle movies. Why? Because that Annabelle doll is so fucking creepy. I'm like, no, they tell you in the first one the doll's not possessed. The demon's trying to get you, and that's the big scare, is that there's something always trying to get you, and it doesn't matter what it has to do to get you or how it's going to get you, but that it's relentless. That relentless, that feeling that you can't really get away from it, that's what's scary. And the spinoffs focus so much on Annabelle and the backstory behind the nun. Like, no, man, don't focus on that. You can play around with it in a sort of what-if storyline, but this focus on a franchise, I think, has actually crippled uh, the franchise to a degree, and that's why you're getting sort of these lesser returns with all these crazy movies that are somehow set in this universe whose timeline is fucked seven ways from Sunday and shit like that. But going back to Conjuring 2, all those little ways that James Wan has the demon scare you is just a way for him to exercise the fun you know it's him showing you a scare that he's gonna set up in the first part of the movie bring it back oh is it gonna scare you now nope is the big scare gonna happen now nope this big scare is gonna happen in a way that you thought it was gonna happen from scares one and two no he finds ways to tease you and then twist the scare on you at the last second there's this fantastic scene that is so simple when the little girl, they think that she's being possessed by the spirit of this guy who died there. And all it is is just a, a shot of the girl talking through the guy's voice and you see Patrick Wilson in the foreground and you see this girl sitting on the couch in the background. It's blurred out. The focus is all on Patrick Wilson's face. And you can swear, and I don't know if I can trust it or not, you swear for half a second the girl is morphing. That for a second you see the actual fucking guy right there behind her. And it's not like somebody's moved into frame, it's not like somebody's swapped in and out, but you could swear for half a second there's an actual fucking guy sitting behind Patrick Wilson when it was a little girl before. And how do they do that? It's such a simple technique if you say it out loud, but the execution of it is so masterful that it really leaves you wondering, how the fuck did they do that? And also what I love about the Conjuring movies that eventually moves on to the third one 
is that they are playing with the structure a little bit. The Conjuring one is... The big twist of that one was that it's poltergeist, but you get to hang out with the demonologists and share the world from their point of view for most of the movie. The second one plays on the idea of hoaxes. The Enfield uh, poltergeist was a big story back then, and people were like, ah, this is bullshit, and this is why it's bullshit, and it's really testing what is real, what isn't. How can you prove to somebody else that demons exist? It really dives into that part of Ed and Lorraine's job that's difficult, and it really does test them as people, because sometimes they have to be like, well, you know... You know, I know something's happening with your family and I really sympathize with you because I experienced these things in my life. But at the same time, I, I can't provide further help if I can't convince somebody else. And because of the things that are going on here, could it be that the little girl is playing a very deliberate prank? Could it be that the mom's in on it to try and get some money and media attention? While it does, I think, add a little bit too much time to the runtime, that it's a little bit kind of sloggy, it does show up uh, that two hour and 15 minute mark. But I feel still that there's so much to love in Conjuring 2, there's so much to explore in that movie. And the character work doesn't suffer really as a result of it. I really love uh, the relationship that Ed and uh, Janet have when they're talking about their difficulties. I really love the conversations Janet has with Vera as people, cause Janet and Vera, Janet and Lorraine, and they're bonding over the ability to see things that others can't. And there's kind of like a therapeutic element to it all. Uh, there's real love between these people. And in, uh, Again, in a franchise that is so easy to discard its characters that aren't top build, this movie does find ways to kind of humanize everybody that comes in and out of the movie. So yeah, Conjuring 2, I don't think it hits quite the mark as the first one did, but there's so much to love in that movie. There's so much to draw and just enough that changes the formula without totally abandoning it and losing the people that love the first one that as far as horror sequels go you gotta put it right at the top and so now we talk about the conjuring the devil made me do it hey you okay there jesus I think I hurt someone. This is Ed Warren, here with Lorraine. All right, let's get started. Residents of Brookfield were shocked this afternoon by the broad daylight murder of Bruno Sauls. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. Whatever was going on, whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. It's a witch's totem. We think your family was cursed. And that connection's still broken. The 
I'm only interested in reality. But I can see things that your people can't. Something terrible happened here. A master Satanist is not an adversary to be taken lightly. Saving him worth everything you have. Because that's what it may very well cost. the devil made me do it i wouldn't say is a perfect sequel i don't think it's earned some of the ire that i've seen on the internet and i don't really think it's earned that much ire to begin with but i really don't think that this film does anything that's too much of a betrayal or it's i don't think it's as slow or pl i don't think it's plotting let me, let me say that. I think it's a different kind of formula. Because it's not really a haunted house movie. It's more like law and order demonic possession unit. You know, it's a procedural. It's an, a mystery. Uh, trying to figure out what happened here. And it's Ed and Lorraine going off into the world to try and find clues and figure this shit out. You know, it's different in that structure. So it could feel at times like it is kind of aimless. So you don't, the more you don't know really what's going on, the more you're kind of like, okay, where are we going with this? And I also don't think the character work is as strong in this one because we don't really see Ed and Lorraine hang out with the main people that are being victimized. Also, this is the first movie that isn't directed by James Wan. It's directed by Michael Chavez, who did The Curse of La Llorona. First and foremost, he understands the core of what makes The Conjuring good, which is Ed and Lorraine. That relationship, their love, they they are they act like high schoolers. In this movie, you actually do see them as high schoolers. But what I love about their relationship and this franchise as a whole that The Devil Made Me Do It actually develops on is that we're watching the development of a relationship in relative real time. The movies come out maybe eight years apart, and I think the cases that the Warrens are taking are set about the same distance apart, so they're getting older. In this movie, Patrick Wilson walks with a cane, like Ed and Lorraine, like Ed Warren's walking with a cane, and he's got a little bit more of a gut now, and he's not as limber as he used to be. Like, there's this shot of Lorraine trying to find something in the clues in the woods and you see Ed hobbling around with a cane running after her and I laughed out loud because it's kind of silly if you take it out of face value but 
what's cool about it is it's showing the progression of a married couple. They're growing. They're aging. They're dealing with different things. They're dealing with uh, health that they're dealing with health issues. You know, their daughter, who I think in the first movie was like a younger girl, is now off out of the house. She's graduated college. Like, we've seen these people grow up. And it's so rare in movies that we see middle-aged heroes dealing with middle-aged shit. And that, to me, as a guy who's been married, coming on four years now, is heartwarming like it's great to see heroes that are still heroic even when time is catching up to them you know they're not the strongest people in the world patrick wilson is sick throughout a decent chunk of this movie but it's that dedication and the love between ed and lorraine that are so heartwarming that is the power of this franchise that even though they're dealing now with uh this case where this guy uh pleads not guilty to murdering someone because he claims he was demonically possessed you know there's you know there's a lot going on in this film that you know the lorraine and ed of 2013 movie would be able to handle no sweat but now it's different it's a different kind of battle it's more it's more of a mind game that's going on and if there's something that I wish the movie would have done, I really wish the movie would have tested more of that a little bit more. It definitely, because it's a later Conjuring movie, like, yeah, there's no question there's some shit going down. But I kind of wish they would have played with the will they, won't they. I love that trope. I love the idea of maybe it's all in somebody's head. And it definitely would have carried over from the obvious hoax guys of two now that there's a little bit of the satanic panic creeping in number three, I think it would have been a little bit more appropriate to do that kind of shit. Chavez's scares are... They're not as good as Wands, but I think they're inventive. I, I really like some of the ways that... Uh, some of the payoffs, I think, are different than what James Wan would do. They're a little bit showier. They're a little bit flashier. But I, I like that kind of shit. Now we have a different kind of villainous force in this one that we have in movies prior. So there are things that are done, again, that don't feel completely out of like the blue in a Conjuring Universe movie, but it's different enough that it gives you something to play with and something to go on while keeping what keeps the core of the movie solid, this love, intact. And God, if Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga just aren't the best goals couple ever like these movies make me cry because i'm married and i love my wife and i just want to have this type of relationship that no matter whatever we're handling no matter if it's something as mundane as you know trying to clean the house and keep the kid fed and put food on the table and a roof over our head to something as insane as like we're fighting fucking demons you know i've got a partner and i've got a best friend and i've got someone who loves me there by my side and that triumph that struggle and that uh honest effort to try and make things better for not only myself and my own but for others it's aspirational 
And I think these characters being aspirational is such a hallmark of what makes this franchise fantastic. It's it's different because you don't fall in love with the victims as much. You don't see a lot of them. You don't really get to have that one-on-one time with Ed and Lorraine because Ed and Lorraine are off like Scooby-Doo looking for fucking clues everywhere. But I like the actors they got for this one. Again, I'm just going to keep rambling until I find them. Uh, oh my god, I am definitely going to... I am so sorry. I'm going to fuck this name up. Uh, Ruari O'Connor plays the guy who was uh, accused of killing people. And then there's Sarah Catherine Hook who plays uh, the girlfriend. And there's kind of like a parallel going on. You know, like they're the couple that's struggling with the odds, but they're still together and fighting through. And then, of course, you've got Ed and Lorraine and they're the older versions of that. I wish the movie would have played a little bit more with it. And... This movie is the same length as Conjuring 1. It's an hour 50, give or take. I wish it would have maybe stretched a little bit more, maybe gotten a little bit slower, played with some of the character work a bit more. I think you could have afforded that because really this franchise I don't think is about the scares as it is about the people. I say franchise. I'm going to say trilogy because the trilogy and the spinoffs are so, like diametrically opposed that I can't really think myself to compare them all at one uh, in one franchise like the fact that this is like a Avengers style billion dollar franchise fucking stuns me and there can probably be essays and treatises about why that happened in this landscape but I'm not really interested in that you know watching this as the one two three punch that I did because I watched them all in a row I think time will be a little bit kinder to The Devil Made Me Do It. It definitely feels kind of like a spinoff, but what's important about it, I think, still stays strong. And I really did love uh, watching Ed and Lorraine grow up. Like, I really want them to get to the point where Lynn Shay did in Insidious to where they're, like, in their fucking 80s and still fighting demons and saving people from ghosts and hauntings and shit. Like, I want that. Especially just since these are based on real-life people, and I don't know enough about the real-life people in order to be like, oh, they were good people or not or whatever, but just... I, I want a horror couple that stays together... They fight together, they win together, and, you know, they love together. Like, I, I want the fuzzy feelings in my horror movie, because, goddammit, I don't get that as often as I think we should. So, that's it. That's my rant, my talk about all three of The Conjuring movies. Uh, I will say, though, the one thing, too, for number three, there needed to be more legal drama. I feel like I needed, uh, I'm going to talk about this movie in a future episode, but A View to Kill, A Time to Kill by Joel Schumacher. Like, I needed some kind of, bear with me now, Kevin Spacey-esque type legal villain. Like, I needed some prosecutor asshole in this movie that Ed and Lorraine would just shit on. I don't know, maybe I'm just too cheesy for this thing, but I love that type of character in the movie. Just the smarmy asshole prosecutor chef's kiss but uh anyway that is me talking about the conjuring trilogy as it stands uh let me know what y'all think about the movies let me know hit me up on twitter at barrios podcast that is spelled b-e-r-r-i-o-s podcast 
Uh, I guess if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a review and let me know what you think about the Conjuring stuff too. But hit me up on Twitter for the most direct things. Uh, I think the next couple episodes are just going to be regular format. Me talking about the news, some movies that I've seen, what Rachel McAdams is up to, and the rest. But of course, just because this is an episode talking about a trilogy don't mean I'm not going to leave you without any dulcet tones. This dulcet tone comes from none motherfucking other than Ryan Gosling. It plays in the original Conjuring movie. It's by his band called Dead Man's Bones, and this is In the Room Where You Sleep. It's kind of a bop. So uh, until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the movies, physical media forever.